what is partially true, but I believe in so absolutely and take so seriously that I've turned it into a dangerous belief. Mm, that's a good one. Uh, Cole Stock, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> This podcast contains the arguably witty banter of two friends, Skippy and Doogles, that like to debate about investing. The content is intended to be entertaining and for informational purposes only, not investment advice. You should do your own research and consult a financial professional before using any of the information in this podcast, and especially before investing. Yo, 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 yo. That's paradise. Oof, always good. I mean, that's why they call it paradise. Man, I want... Um, I'll Actually, let's get the intern on this. I want to know how many different countries this show has been recorded from. Now, I know you're technically in the good old EF survey right now, but America, smack America. dab in the middle of the Pacific is not, it feels like another country, right? That's a true story. What we probably have to do is how many locations? That'd be yeah. really good because we how got some locations? Marriott's yep. in the Bay Area, shady hotels in NYC. <laughs> I had a I had an Arizona trip in there. We got some, yeah, you been all over the place. Can we, can we talk about tipping, man? Tipping, it's hot right oh. now. There are two things that have now converged based on stuff we've talked about recently. One thing is we discussed tipping, how tipping, uh, people are getting irate about it, people not happy about it here in the U.S., getting out of control. And then we dropped a few lyrics about Casa Bonita, that famed Colorado restaurant opening back up. And those two things is coming together right now. What we discussed before was that there are these, uh, you know, the, the POS, point of sale system machines, over the last three years have started recommending tipping amounts that are aggressive. Maybe, maybe that's in some cases just insane. Yeah. Like (laughs) not everyone's, not everyone's abusing it, but people certainly are. Yeah. Um, Like, you know, when uh, typically you might say it's a 10, 15, 20, 15, 20, 25%, something like that is the recommended amount. You can always go above uh, if you want to. But machines have started starting at like 20%. Like, do you want to do 20, 30, or 75%? You know, it's like <laughs> n- numbers like that. And, and so, so we discussed that. And then we talked about Casa Bonita, the famous restaurant, coming back, the uh, creators of, of South Park, reopening. They did a $40 million, alleged $40 million renovation on that joint, opening it back up. One of the things you don't have to they... say alleged. This isn't like some white collar crime craze. There's no reason for them to lie about how much money they spent on the restaurant. Dougals. No, there is because if they spend fifteen thousand dollars, no one's going to write about it. If you say it's forty okay. million dollars, and listen, when I visit, I'm going to validate. I'm going to yeah. look, yeah, ask for the, their accounting statements. Yeah. Let's see what we got. Here. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so, they, but they came out pre-opening and they told the staff that they're going to move away from a tipping system there and instead integrate tips into their base pay. So where typically, um, I think the numbers they threw out there were typically someone might make like a $15 an hour plus. I think that's what they told them that they were going to be paying there. It was like 15, which is pretty solid. Instead, they're moving to $30 an hour, no tips. So what you're saying in that world rounded you're talking about 60K, a little over $60,000 a year, assuming that you're working your 40 hours per week. That's where they're, they're paying their wait staff. And people are saying, well, what, what about the upside? Like, how do, I, how do I get hit with the yeah. upside? It's fascinating to me, that point. I want to get your reaction. 
So I'm fired up about this, which just means tipping is the new politics and you can't please. Everybody's upset all the time, basically. Yeah. is uh, The thing that I like about tipping is you can reward people for doing great work, like in real time. Happens yeah. immediately. They bring you your food. They're attentive to your kids. They go the extra mile. They're pleasant to deal with. They help yeah, you out. A, you know, it's the ultimate like, spot bonus, right? Right. Yeah, there you um, go. And taking that away completely feels unfair. And it also feels like the level of service will be hurt. Now, there's got to be some middle ground here. The thing on the level of service being hurt, because I agree in some establishments with, with people, with some people, I think that you're absolutely right. Many times, and I'm, you know, I love tipping. We talked about this. I enjoy the tipping. Uh, Big fan of the tipping system. And most times I'd actually say it doesn't seem like people are working for the tip. Like, you know know what I mean? Like, it, it doesn't, it doesn't feel like to me there's like going above and beyond for the most part. I mean, and most people, we've discussed this, most people in most lines of business and lines of work are not going above and beyond. You don't have to go above and beyond necessarily in your work. But I don't know I, if taking away tips are going to decrease service. That's my okay. Well, I mean, we got it. We're gonna have to talk investing here and get Skippy off a st- uh, soapbox. Let's but do like, it. no, I honestly feel the only job I ever got tips in real time was uh, like pizza delivery guy. And man, I would bring that service. That level of service was top notch, and I was all about that extra tip. Here's what happens in most <laughs> restaurants, though, Dougal's. The waitress ignores you the whole time and then puts a little a cute little heart and says, like, thank you so much for coming in on your receipt. Yeah. To try and bump that up. It is interesting though that if you go, so if you go overseas, go to Europe, right? Where tipping is not nearly as common. I'll yeah. say in some parts of Europe, it's the the level of service is much more highly varied. It is not, in my estimation, it is not that it's just worse. It's just more variable. Let me just back up the truck here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the, the point was just to say the two things are converging, right? That we talked about. I think it's interesting to say, and it's not a, it's not a low wage, so to speak, depending on where you live, right? Living wages are different. But for um, for someone in the service industry, saying that if you can get your forty hours, you're getting a guaranteed sixty k a year is pretty interesting. I think like it's a it's an interesting yep, so- wage. And this is where uh, Munger's a genius because Munger always talks about incentives. What this does, Dougals, that's not only takes away the upside, um, maybe impacts the level of service. It also says the person that works like Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, yeah, effectively exactly. makes the same money as the person that's sacrificing their Friday and Saturday. Typically, yeah. the person sacrificing their Friday or Saturday is doing it because they get... They it's have more wage. tables, so they yep. get more tips. Yep. Yep. Like, yep. Yep. So that system kind of works because you can't go to the concert with your friends on Friday night, but the trade-off is you get more uh, yeah. money. So, so where you end up going in that world, potentially, depending on how it plays out, is you have differential pay depending on shift, but it still doesn't have to be a tip-based system. I didn't see that in the article. Is that in there? No, because... no, no, they didn't. I'm saying where it, where it might end up going, depending on how it ends up playing out. That's what happens a lot of times in customer service jobs where if someone has to work the mm-hmm. the late shift or the overnight shift, right? You get you get a different wage um, because it's a it's a less preferred shift. So you it could we'll see where this goes. It could be something where you make thirty dollars an hour, generally speaking. If you're working Friday, Saturday, maybe you're making forty, making that up. I don't know. 
I, I think it's a, it's an interesting experiment to run regardless. We'll see who they end up getting to work there. We'll see how much they make and whether or not it works out over the long term. But I thought it was interesting. Yeah, it's backwards. I think they're going to backtrack on this. Uh, for so? a lot of the reasons we just talked about, another thing that happens is um, on a Tuesday night, if no one comes to your restaurant, yeah, unfortunately, That's your true. servers That's don't true. make much money, but you're not out the yeah. 30 bucks an yeah. hour to pay them. So those Tuesday nights where you take a loss anyway, they're going to take That's a true. bigger loss than average. Now, That's true. hopefully That's true. that comes out in the wash, but I think they're going to backtrack on this. There's okay. middle ground we'll that we had. We'll see. Stay tuned. You'll get the hot, hard-hitting news on Casa Bonita here on the Skippy and Dougal's Talk Investing Podcast. We'll keep this all updated. Is, yeah, this is basically <laughs> what the show has become. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we've moved on from Kathy Wood to Casa Bonita. Uh, <laughs> all right. The best thing I read this week uh, was really interesting breakdown um, in Bloomberg titled hundred million, a hundred billion, excuse me, wealth migration tilts the U.S. economy center of gravity Ooh. south. A headline is hi- hyperbolic, like it'll slow your roll a little. Um, <laughs> and and this article and all articles try to make these grandiose conclusions about like this is the new thing. Like no, this is there's long term trends that we're seeing play out. Some of it accelerated by COVID, but let me throw some facts your way, yep. and then we'll we'll play off each other for this. So. They're trying to brand the South, the new, new South. What, they, what they're really talking about here is, say, Texas, up north to Kentucky, down south to Florida, somewhere in there, um, that southeast corridor. Although there's plenty of economic development going on in the Arizonas of the world. So, But this article specifically talks about kind of that southeast corridor. It's the southeast, right? yep. What it does so well is articulate these changes. We're going to talk about Dun & Bradstreet in just a second. But some of these changes, the changes are happening for a variety of reasons. It's like a culmination of factors. Well, but can, we, can we back up for a moment? Can I slow yeah. your roll down for a second? Yeah. What's important, because we're talking about changes, but then you get with the changes, you get the from and the to. What are we changing from? What are we changing to? And just to set a little context, the reason why, to me, this is fascinating, is that the Southeast has, for the past hundo years, right? Let's call it effectively, maybe at least, at least. the last 50 years has been a, the slower economic growth region of the US. Generally, when you're talking about economic booms, you're talking about the Northeast, you're talking about California, right? That's generally where the economy of the country sits. Now, there's plenty of GDP still that comes from those regions, but from a growth perspective, it's generally been slower. So that that's why the change is important here. Yeah. And the amazing thing that the article, the article doesn't go here, but this is where I'm going. This is why America is is has so many competitive advantages so if this was europe and you had the uk and france and germany dominate the economic markets for a long time and then there's a shift to italy and spain and others like that would it wouldn't be nearly as seamless if you look at total tax revenues and government expenditures basically like government distribution of funds is what i mean for the longest time the New Yorks and the Californias have paid significantly more taxes because they've had more economic activity than someplace like Mississippi or Alabama. And so Mississippi or Alabama receives more than they actually pay when you talk about federal government funds. And that's been sometimes not so good for New York, sometimes better for Mississippi. It's a coarse analogy. I think you get it. What's happening yep. now is the growth has moved 
to these six southern states. And for the first time, they're actually uh, creating more economic output than the Northeast Corridor. And, and, what and, that the, just and means, the, the influx of capital is wild. Sorry to interrupt you, but this, the graph just caught my eye sockets. My optical illusions just hit these graphs. And it's wild to see places like Charleston, South Carolina, going from effectively $0 in inflows a decade ago to over $4 billion in inflows yeah. on this deal. Sorry. So the states we're talking about here are Florida, Texas, Georgia, the Carolinas, and Tennessee. If you think of any of those states, there, there's a hot city or two, right? Yeah. It's a Charlotte. It's a Nashville. There's lots of places in Florida blowing up. Texas has benefited greatly uh, post-pandemic. Austin's blowing up, but so is the rest of the state, right? These states are major winners post-COVID because of a number of factors. But one of the things is it's affordable to live down there. Yeah. So that all the time in everything in life, people examine opportunity costs. And what's happened recently is people got sick of buying a three-bedroom in California. And this is more about the Northeast versus Southeast. So let's call it a three-bedroom near New York City for $1.5 million when you could get something way better in South Carolina, Tennessee, you name it, for yeah. a third of the price, right? That's a factor here. Another factor is tax credits. Um, there are people that will tell you that weather is a factor. There's a lot going on here. But it's incredible to see, to get to the numbers, right? They have charts on net flows of adjusted gross income for tax filers since 2012. Call it last decade, right? Yep, yep, yep. Miami, Florida, almost $20 billion in net inflows. Um, Dallas, Texas, $6 billion. Charleston, South Carolina, call it $4 billion. Jacksonville, Florida which is the focus of this article, $2 billion. Jacksonville. Jacksonville. <laughs> Jacksonville. Can we talk about Jacksonville? Please. I mean, we, ahead, we, dis we, discussed, we discussed at one point when I was at the Dollar General in Jacksonville, a place you do not want to find yourself, okay, is the Dollar General in Jacksonville. That's Jacksonville, Florida. There ain't no $2 billion going to the Dollar General in Jacksonville, at least not the one I experienced. So just thinking about that city, that's a huge change. Huge change. Dollar General was the fanciest place I could find to get my band-aids. <laughs> well, okay. So Jacksonville's downtown is deserted. And according to you, who's been there recently, not the nicest city on earth. You know how you get a large company like Dun & Bradstreet to move down? Taxes. Give them a $100 million package of cash and tax incentives. Wild. Yeah. It's a little insane. Yeah. The CFO, whose name is Brian Hipshire? I'm not sure if this guy is Hipshire. Can't be trusted. <laughs> <laughs> cannot, be, cannot be trusted at all. Basically said 100 million was too much. Like they were based in Short Hills, New Jersey, quality place if you've ever been. But they they looked at the numbers. They just ran the numbers on this and said, yeah, this is yep. good to you go. can't afford not to do it. Yep. On top of that, their average employee who still is highly educated. University of Florida is nearby. There's, I mean, there's good crop of talent down there. Now only makes $77,000, which is much less than they were paying in New Jersey. So like, win, win, win. This is happening all over the place. It's happening in Atlanta. It's happening in Nashville. 
It's happening throughout North Carolina, and it's happening in four or five different spots in Texas. It's fascinating. It's fascinating. And though we don't have to get into the specifics at this point, but the impact, the potential impact you end up having on the political landscape is also quite interesting. And they hit on that at one point in this article. High level, regardless of political beliefs or any of that, it just, if you just think about the states that we just discussed, and generally speaking, they're going to be voting Republican. And you have people that are filing in there from California. And I think the, the question comes up being, and there's a lot of stereotype that sits in there, right? Because even if you say, if a state is Republican, that doesn't mean everyone there, even if you're all Republican, believe in the same thing or anything. So it's not about the specific beliefs. It's just like, generally speaking, that's a different uh, demographic system than you have coming from California. And so whether or not this is going to end up being a situation where you have states that are start to turn purple, as they say, right, becoming more Democrat, Republican, or you end up having people from California that are leaving that were already Republican, and they just become more red, who knows what that ends up being, but it's, it's, a, it's going to be a changing landscape of some sort. Um, as we start to go forward, they also with, one of the yeah, go well, with more political power, because the population center. Yes, exactly. The southeast. Exactly. So whether that it's whether that political power becomes more one way or gets more mixed, it what to be seen because it depends on who the individuals are that are going they did talk about yeah this is with charleston specifically discussed how a lot of this influx leads to more gentrification and income inequality as well and so that's that's a truism i mean if you have four billion dollars in adjusted gross income that's coming into your city it's likely going to change the city unless you're living in like atherton california and then you're like wow these poor people coming in you know what i mean like because atherton's so wealthy yeah um this isn't this article is not about a migration of the homeless population right yeah, exactly. it's, it's exactly. about people who make decent wages i want to fill out the we talked about the net growth in gross income for tax mm, filers yes in the southeast here's some other states where you see a net decline new york city past decade almost 60 billion that is the, I'm, <laughs> Ridiculous. Ridiculous. And I want to define it again because it's an odd term. Net flows of adjusted gross income for tax filers moving from other states. Chicago's going on maybe 25 billion. Los Angeles is about 15 billion. And Washington, D.C. is closer to eight. Still, significant movement of incomes and the people that make those incomes typically headed to the Southeast. What I mentioned earlier is it's it's easy to read an article like this and make these broad sweeping conclusions. Nothing. It's not that simple, right? There's other factors at play here. And I'm not claiming that New York city or Los Angeles is dying. Like that would be a stupid take. And it's not yeah. true, but and percentages uh, are also helpful. Percentages yeah. are helpful in situations like this, right? Which they, they did not provide either way. Your point is well taken that you can, you can draw tons of large, make tons of large grandiose statements with things like this. And it's never all that simple. But the, the, the general take that the Southeast is experiencing really high growth, especially in comparison to what historically have been the high growth areas like New York, like California, is an interesting trend that we've mm-hmm. been seeing for a little bit of time. It seems like it has a little bit of acceleration or maybe a lot of, bit of acceleration over the last three years, but it's been happening even prior to that. The reversion to the mean, my friend, maybe. It's interesting. No, that's that's my whole point. I mean, you know, I think everything in life is reversion to the mean. This is yeah. cost of living, taxes, and uh, 
basically property prices got out of whack in certain places and this is just the economy adjusting by the way you're so right on that percentages bloomberg whoever the intern is that do the research on this fire that guy already all right He's or, or they ran the percentages and they went that story is not as good it's it's one of those two it didn't it's run not them. nearly as hyperbolic like yeah, musk exactly. won't even let us put that on twitter so peace out yeah exactly we'll all put right. this on the sub subset guys and you can check it out for yourself i'm gonna reach in to the fishbowl here and i'm gonna pull out this piece really simple piece no pros in this piece from collab fun morgan housel a few questions is what this is called and guess what's in the article more than a few questions yeah actually it's it's, it's misleading to be honest it was it should have been called a whole buttload of questions yeah but it was a few questions so this this piece was all just questions to ask yourself it's kind of all that it was uh, there was there was no context around it no pros no takeaways just a bunch of questions i specifically found four that stood out the most to me it's not that these are only the four important ones or nothing like that they just stood out the most to me that i wanted to raise here but i think i think all the questions are worth looking through for folks so can i name those four did you want to start somewhere different yeah we're getting there this article is so good that i hated every second of it it's so good <laughs> that i was like oh I have to answer all these questions because they're like incredibly thought provoking in some cases profound and important to know to free your core value system that I was like, I have to schedule a three day personal retreat to just like do some internal work. And I don't have time for that. So I hate it. Yeah. Well, like the last action hero, <laughs> it was so good. I hate it every second. Or maybe Brett Favre. Maybe I'm taking a darkness retreat. <laughs> oh, 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 wait. Oh, that's wow. Aaron Rodgers. Wow. That was yeah, you, whoa. You're just Green okay. Bay quarterback. It it's all good. Nope. Mm -mm. Nope. Nope. All right. Uh, I'm going to hit on the first one that stood out the most to me. Whose life do I admire that is secretly miserable? Mind blowing. Mind blowing. So if you want to give answers, I can tell you. But basically, I would guess 90% of people that we all, the collective we, admires has a miserable life. I, I've always tried to articulate this with um, the people that get glamorized in our society. And let's say like in business and investing. I mean, for a talking point and only a talking point, let's talk high level about Buffett. Everyone talks about genius, brilliant investor, everything else. Peanut brittle. <laughs> He's sacrificed a lot because he's so passionate about business. Yeah. And that yeah. might be, you know, like, I, I think there's a lot of things in his life that haven't, I mean, and his marriage is the easiest example here, but uh, there's others. Uh, it, again, not necessarily about Buffett. I just wanted to do a talking point. Yeah. I think if you and do a deep dive into these people that get glamorized, you'll often find it's not quite as glamorous as it appears. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make it, there's an editor too that you can make to the question if miserable might be too powerful. I, I think you could say, whose life do I admire that isn't as good as I actually think it is? Or it could be, and, and also even with miserable, that person may not think it's miserable, but if you live their life, it might be miserable to you. I think, yeah, I think both of those are important. Uh, but the general point, the reason I like this question so much, as you were talking through with the Buffett thing, is that we look outside in other people's lives in general you have no idea it, it, 
if you if you take this to a micro point on portfolio and not just life, it's you've mentioned it before. We talked about it here before. Is you're like, oh man, Simmons, Diamonds. I never really know how you pronounce that guy's name. Um, yeah. But anyway, um, Jim Simmons. Jim, Jim Simmons. Simmons. He you like he just got into name your stock. You're like you have no idea what percentage of his portfolio that is, what hedges he has, whether or not he even cares about the money. He could have been having coffee with somebody else and been like dude, this is ridiculous, but I'm going to do it because who cares, right? Like you never know what someone else has uh, has up their sleeve or what their perspective is in something. And I think that's just also true of life. So that's why I love this question. Like just their life is their life. Your life is your life. It's a different context. You never know what's going on under the hood. Next question. What do I believe? Oof. Mm-hmm. And this is, this is like a, a two-parter really. Um, the first part. What do I believe is true? only because believing it puts me in good standing with my tribe tribe being like my people right the people i care about here yeah i'm gonna jump so, in and answer that like 90 percent of everything <laughs> <laughs> i'm gonna read the question again what do i believe is true only because believing it puts me in good standing with my tribe so what are the beliefs that you hold because if you didn't hold them you couldn't have your crew you couldn't be a part of your social environment. So therefore you keep believing it. That is power. That is power. If you do research on uh, assimilation and how meaningful it is to basically humans because we want to be liked, we don't want to stand out from our tribe, our crowd, you'll quickly see that the new kid on the block that wears different clothes, two months later, hanging out with the new crew, probably wears the same clothes. Like, this is super powerful. Status and culture. Status and culture. Yeah. Okay, I'm going to go to the next belief one. What do I believe? Same beginning, different end. What do I believe the most with the least amount of evidence of it being true? What do I believe the most with the least amount of evidence of it being true? Probably relates to my weight or my coolness, Dougals. <laughs> kind of a joke but what, i mean what's your this is a hard one yeah this one reminded me well, let me let me look this up make sure i get this right uh this reminded me of there's this book i read recently it's not a new one but i just read it recently that was written by a coach of sorts that was written by byron katie called loving what is it's a coaching book effectively if you enjoy the art of coaching it's a book that i would recommend reading what was fascinating though is she has like Byron Katie has this series of questions that she asks. It's called she called it the work. When you're doing the work on yourself, there's a series of questions you ask. And one of them is, is it true? So someone will come to her and be like, Man, my boy Skippy, he he hates me so much. He's always blah, blah, blah. And she goes, Is it true? And then the person usually has an answer that's like, Yeah, it's true. I ain't be coming up in you, right? Anyway, people don't necessarily talk to her like that. But and then and then her next question, which is powerful, is can you know that it's true? Boom. Right. And and, and almost always it's no, it's my perception of the truth. Yeah, exactly. Right? And then you unpeel the, yeah, but is your perception of the truth actually right? And hey, maybe sometimes you got there, but maybe other times you're like Nancy Drew with uh, some bad facts. Jump to exactly. conclusions because you want it to be true. Exactly. And you, br you bring that back to the world of investing. 
you got people like our our boy from TikTok investors a couple of years ago that was I'm primetime investment material. Is it true? Yeah, because I always be buying low, selling high. Yeah. But hold on. You said your primetime investment material. Can you know that that's true? Yeah, because I've been investing for seven days. No, so you cannot know that it's true. It, it's important in this world. That's a, you know, we're joking about that one, but it's important in this world to get a handle on your psychology. And what are the things that you know? What are the things no, you believe? But, yep, sorry, yep, on your joke no. there, even if you've outperformed for 10 years, you, you can't yet prove that it's true. And I don't want to get crazy with statistics here. You could outperform for 50 years and there'd still be like the 0. 0.00001% yep. chance. But like you you flip a coin enough times, someone strikes, you know, 12 straight heads. That's just how probabilities yep. work. And so it, a lot of this to say that there's no luck involved when we specifically talk about investing, it you need a dang long track record to get to the point where you can say it is true. I got a little bit away from the question there, but I think, but it's related. The question's super powerful. What do you believe the most with the least amount of evidence of it being true? Okay, yeah. the last one. Can I get to the last one? Yeah. Is this thing I'm worried about actually a problem? Or am I looking for problems to worry about because they make me feel in control? <laughs> yeah. Can that you be the name like, of the podcast? Do, oh do my you goodness. feel that one in your toes? Like, did you feel that one in your toes? I, again, me. I just want to run away to my darkness retreat for three days. I don't know how to <laughs> exactly, answer this. Exactly. These are these are not questions that you ask like right before you go into a job interview. You know what I mean? <laughs> like these questions just are not show up in a cold you... sweat, man. Yeah, exactly. You're not getting that job. Exactly. This one we talked about recently. I don't remember who wrote the. But there was a blog post we were looking at recently that made me. This question reminds me of where it was about taking action, right? Like people like to take action in their portfolios and investments because it makes them feel better, right? Like doing something feels better than not doing anything. And this question really reminds me of that. It's kind of like the need to feel in control will make you try and grab control. And so then you start creating issues where there are no issues. Just sit back, relax. It's amazing you covered your four favorite. You didn't even get to my top two. So Ooh. first is, and I'm going to answer this. So get ready for a bombshell. Okay. What is partially true, but I believe in so absolutely and take so seriously that I've turned it into a dangerous belief. It's mm. a good one. Uh, Cole's stock, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> the current valuation of Cole's stock. That's <laughs> That's all there is to it. Maybe Baba's <laughs> up there too. All right. That was half a joke. I'm not joking on this one. Is there something in my life I think I'm passionate about in quotes or focused on, but I'm actually just addicted to? Mm, yeah, that's it. Right. So you that's get a good to one. the point that's where a good the one. passion controls you and then you go, oh, no, I like investing guys. Like I, I, I like investing. Now, maybe you just lost control of this and now you have to come up with an excuse to tell yourself for why this is important i think uh a lot of things related to work mm -hmm. fit here yeah i right. do it because i love it i do it because i love it i mean watch that line because it is a thin line are you i think jokingly you probably were serious but i'm taking the joke because it makes me feel better 
but jokingly, you know, when uh, I check my portfolio more often than mm-hmm. it would be advised, and I was saying I do that because I, I like the data. Like I like being all up in the data. The more data I have, the more comforting it makes me feel. I do believe that there's some truth in that. But something you always would say is you're like, I know that's a story you tell yourself, independent of whether or not it's true. I know that's a story you tell yourself, right? You don't even have to finish after the ellipsis there. Because there's a question where you go, you know, you get an app that's beautiful to look at, like a Robin Hood. Yep. And, I, you know, I was bringing that to me. We can bring it to other people, though. Is it is that the reason why? Or is it like short-term endorphins and you're just addicted to like opening that app and seeing whatever you might see the green for example right which of those is it and just make sure you know make sure i know in this scene yeah um somewhat personal detour here which is uh musk has made all these changes to twitter and and five years ago twitter was this incredible place to interact with even the world's most famous investors right yeah yeah he so this week he's bragging about um something along the lines of this is the highest ever engagement in terms of uh, seconds per user, something along those lines. So it okay. basically meant people are staring at Twitter more than they have ever before on a per user basis. And I'm going, that's a bad thing. Like that's driving me away. That's why I'm not huge on some of the other Instagrams or Snapchats or TikToks, right? Because it feels like this, it's just tr- tricking your brain into maximizing you to stare at the screen. I feel like that's happening to a platform that used to be more of a news-based and um, like passion-based way to exchange ideas. And yeah. it's bad, in, in my opinion. It's probably not bad for the owner. It's probably not bad for a lot of people. But that's really what this reminds me of. It's like, am I actually passionate about this or am I just trapped in a dopamine cycle? because i've been programmed that way and it doesn't it doesn't have to be mutually exclusive but there's a line and it's just good to know where you are relative to that line be conscious about it in in general so those are good ones i think that's the main takeaway of this question it's just like yeah make sure that what you're telling yourself is actually true it almost goes to the last question you talked about like yeah are you actually passionate about xyz Yep. Or is it just a lie you're telling yourself? Okay. I'm jumping into the fishbowl. We'll get back to more straight investing talk. Um, Morningstar did a study on the reasons people pick a financial advisor. Okay. Pretty simple. I'm not going to read you the eight-page study. I'm going to talk at a very high level about the conclusions. I have a clarifying question. Uh, Clarifying question. Is it... The reason why people like get a financial advisor in the first place or after they decided to get one, here's how they select the individual person, a specific person they work with. The first, the reason okay. they decide they to a, hire help. any financial. Yeah. Okay. Cool. All right. Not necessarily deciding between financial advisor A and financial advisor B. Okay. All right. Cool. Go forward. Okay. Most common is they want to be more comfortable handling their finances, right? They either don't like it. So they are reaching out for help. They don't feel secure about their decision-making. Like simple stuff. I think, I think it'd be an upset if that wasn't the number one pick. Number two, uh, they have specific goals or needs, right? Um, they want to set up an annuity. They want to learn to start investing. They know that they need to do something for retirement, but they're not sure what. So 
those sort of things. Those are by far the two most common reasons to pick a financial advisor representing like about two thirds of the total reason, the total survey responses in terms of this is why I selected a financial. Advisor. Yep. Third is behavioral coaching. This is amazing. Like if you're in a camp where you know how irrational the human brain is when dealing with financial decisions and can actually seek out help, you're way ahead of the game. Recognizing the value and a different perspective in generally or in general, I think is is a big deal, which I think is a part of that. Right? You just saying, I might feel even if you can't pinpoint it, I might feel like there is a bias that I have in my own head right now that I could probably get around. Let me get someone else that knows this that can support me there. It's like a that's a hard, that's a hard place to get to. Yeah, and this is where for like our listeners that are debating this formally paying for um, help, I would say it's fine if you feel like you know your stuff and you use Vanguard funds or an app like Wealthfront or something to self-manage, but you need a friend or a, a parent or an aunt or uncle or somebody in yep. your corner that you can call up when you're freaking out and say, Hey, I want to do this. And and they can just go, wait, we've worked on this for 20 years. Why would you change your impression now? Like there's so much value in that. Make sure you have a person. Especially over long periods of time. Like, you know, yeah. we, we've discussed a lot going through different cycles and whatnot. Yeah. It's power. Last two, which are good is you you're recommended or family by family or friends. This is basically like your dad saying, Listen, get your act together. Go hire this guy. <laughs> and or you have a pre-existing relationship. Now, I love to think about having a pre-existing relationship or a quality. It's just quality of relationship, but it can mean a lot of things. Like if you already have someone you trust who happens to have financial expertise and happens to like know and love and care about your family, like make that higher, guys. I'm not I'm not here peddling financial advisors, but like that is a great situation to have. If they're going to do a full 360 view of you and your family's best interest, and it's not too expensive, that's a great person to have in your corner. With, with what you just recommend, or what you just not recommended, what you just stated, it makes me think about the difference between like fee-based or percentage-based effectively. Because one of the, what you just said reminds me of, I'll call it a project, right? It's saying, can I get a full view of my financials, a, a look into what might be existing in the world, et cetera? And that's something you can you pay a flat rate and you can get it, not necessarily need 1% of your portfolio's value, right? As it continues to go up. Very fair. And we won't even go there on today's episode. No, but it just, it just made me think about that. Yeah. yeah. I think that's fair. You could also call the friends and family one intervention. Like the way, the way you, like, I, I don't know if it's a euphemism. That's like, there, there's a recommendation from friends and family as opposed to they knocked down my door and said, I don't, Look, think, the bro. Survey, I don't think the survey went there, but I know what you're saying. And that's, there's gotta be some of that, right? Especially, so I think of like your higher wealth families, right? In some cases, they might just be like, listen, this is, yeah, it's expensive. Yeah, it sucks. You're doing this. It's kind of a, in this household, we do things this way. Exactly. Intervention. <laughs> I, got, I, got, I got one more thing in the fishbowl. I'm going to reach in, right. talk about Gen Z and retirement. And this is not a sp specific to Gen Z thing, I don't believe. 
oftentimes you've said this a whole bunch when there are surveys and discussions about different generations it's more just talking about different age groups and it's not necessarily that it's different for this generation i found this to be some interesting takeaways on here and this is a yahoo finance piece which i know you have your own feelings about but that said here do we I go ever, yeah do, do, I, do i ever okay so according to this survey people in gen z believe they're going to retire at 60 on average and they believe they're going to live to 100 on average so what this is saying is that they believe they're going to have 40 years of retirement freedom yeah 40 years to eat craft mac and cheese and uh, <laughs> huddle in exactly. a cardboard box because they <laughs> wow wow sorry that was aggressive but like what you're where you're going Dougals, i know you well enough to know is like whoa you're gonna work for 40 years and then you're gonna magically have income for 40 years and that's like a no sweat thing it's, it's a tough equation to pull off yes and one of the one of the things you could believe by reading those first two points is you could be like okay so they have there's an overestimation on the amount of money they're going to be able to make over their lifetime if that is a belief you have that is wrong because they believe that on average they're going to retire and it will be enough with 1.2 million dollars oh yeah they don't know about net present values huh at all or yeah they don't know about inflation you went wow you went way too complex when you put <laughs> net present values they don't know how money works and how living works in, in that world like 1.2 million dollars was awesome to retire on like 15 years ago maybe like 25 years ago and not for 40 years <laughs> It's it's outrageous. Don't worry. The the government's gonna have their back, right? That's what they think. No, no, they don't. <laughs> they do not. They also don't believe social security will be a thing. This kind of comes back to me, and there, there are a bunch of other stats. So they compare this to um other generations. Basically, the one of the flows um of readiness, or sorry, the uh the perspective on readiness for retirement, the older someone is, the less ready they believe <laughs> that they are for retirement. So that's effectively it, except millennials kind of throw it off because millennials are like, we're good. Like the highest of all of the generations, 65% of millennials expect to be financially ready. So other than that, the older you get, the less financially ready you're going to be. But the, the main takeaway I had, though, from this goes back to what we discussed a few weeks back. We discuss it all the time, but about financial literacy. There's just not enough of a strong understanding on how money works how the economy works and how that relates to your own life and use of funds that was that's my takeaway here and it's not clowning on gen z what i said before it's just this is just the younger generation right they're just folks that are earlier in their careers and younger and we need to get people more ready and more understanding love it i'm gonna take a detour we're gonna get back there this, this article this week by my boy felix salmon uh in Axios, simply called the case for printing two trillion to save the planet, <laughs> is like the most fascinating thought experiment <laughs> since um, our boy James McIntosh. Just insane. So the the basic premise of this article is that the richest countries in the world currently all have financial flexibility to print money, and they have been doing that significantly. And COVID's a perfect example. And you can argue that 
there's more positive benefits than negative benefits. And he says, and that sums of money like that are so meaningful to the world's poorest countries Yes, that they could build infrastructure. Like, so the U S could write the check, not even know, like not even feel it. It's like your rich uncle hers worth a billion bucks. And you're like, dude, I just really need 20 K for a car. If I get that car, I can get this job. If I get that job, I can start making 75 K a year. Then I can afford the house. Like my life can be set with this small investment from you that you don't even notice. It's that type of Mm -hmm. logic. And I I don't think he's fully convinced that it would work. But it's I think such thought, a thought, experiment. thought experiment. Yeah, thought experiment's yeah. the right phrase for it. I I, I agree. Yeah, we'll put this in the stub stack. You should read it through. Because it is, it is. I, I read it and I was like, I don't think I believe this. And it's fascinating. I don't think it's uh I think there's way more unintended consequences than he can lay out. Yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah. Because That's there the always thing. is. But I'm not sure I went in very skeptical. I'm not sure that I don't believe it because the whole rich uncle example I gave, it's just like that's a thing. That happens. There are people with so much money in relative terms that they can make a life-changing investment to others. This is what Bill Gates and Bill and Melinda Gates had tried to do with their foundation. It's like, how can I spend $1 where it makes the most significant impact? It's a a worthwhile goal, I think. That's right. Um, (laughs) So check that out. And then, yeah, financial literacy, Gen Z... There's a lot going on there, Dougals, because some of it is financial literacy, some of it literacy, some of it is simply age, which is what I always say. But it's like at whatever, 23, you don't know what you know at 30 and you don't know what you know at 45. And they read songs about this, Dougals. Everyone wants to go back with the knowledge <laughs> from their older years to their younger years. They read songs. <laughs> Tale of his oldest time. All right. Yeah. So there we go. Speaking of millions of dollars, and in better yet, billions of dollars, Databricks bought Mosaic uh, Machine Learning, Mosaic ML, which has 62 employees for $1.3 billion. You don't have to do the math. I'll do it for you. Well, I actually didn't do the math. I'm stealing this from online, so I hope (laughs) this is right. It's about $21 million per employee. So first of all, those employees better. Yes, the management team should take a bigger sum, but they better, the lowest of low employees better have a $3 million check on their plate. Somewhere. $21 million per employee. <laughs> it's it's mind boggling. I mean, I don't know if it's right or wrong. I certainly wouldn't have wrote that check, but I'm uh, paralyzingly conservative. That's so much money. I want to find the, so back in the day when Instagram got bought by Facebook at the time, their per employee, it, it couldn't have been a revenue thing because they didn't really have revenue. I don't think at all at the time, but the valuation per employee was really high. I'm trying to, let me look this up. Instagram. This was, I think this might be it. No, I'm, I'm just, I'm reading off the first thing that I found. So we'll see if this is right. But I found this, 77 million. Yes, exactly. $77 million in valuation, not in revenue. $77 million per employee. At the time, 13 employees, it looks like. Um, so 
Yes, Douglas, you did the confirmation bias thing. You proved all the problems with the human brain. You found the one example where this craziness <laughs> actually worked. With I guarantee there's 999 where people play pay this and they're now it's now a zero. No, bucks. all all I'm saying is this one sounds cheap. <laughs> there we go. That type of logic from a long trend momentum investor over there. <laughs> there you go. Uh that's a wrap. We got to let Diggles get back to paradise. So, um, listen, we talked about tipping. I believe our Twitter account at Skippy Diggles has this tip feature. No one's ever tipped us, but if you want to send us 99 cents <laughs> or 99% of $0, feel free to hit that button. Check it out. We'll, we'll test if it works. Uh, we love listener mail, skippydougals at gmail.com. If you could please share the show with a friend, that's hugely helpful to us. And if you haven't reviewed it, uh, please uh, give us a positive review. If you hate the show, feel free to email us and complain. That's great too. Did Thank I miss you, anything, Douglas? No, that's all. Thank all right. you. Thanks, guys.